Evening, everyone. So those who were at the weekend away, I, I promised them that Romans 8 just gets better and better and that like it ends on a high. So that's why they stuck around. They're exhausted because they, they stayed up till whatever hour of the morning, some of them, and, and yet they stuck around here. And what I didn't tell them uh, what I'm going to tell you, who weren't on the weekend away, is that you missed the weekend away, which I think you missed out, but uh, is that, does that not translate, that joke? Okay, she thinks I'm hilarious. I pay her to sit in the front row and laugh at my jokes. Um, yeah, you did miss out, but you, you, and you missed out on most of Romans 8, and uh, it may be a blessing to you to download these things and, and, and listen to them, but the end of Romans 8 is a summary of all of Romans 8. So you knew that. That's why you didn't come on the weekend. You knew if you came tonight, you'd get the whole katuti in one message. huh? And all the people from the camp are thinking, why did you not tell us this before? We got stuck here listening to you again. We could just have come. Okay, but anyway, Romans 8. It's been a, a real joy to be with your church uh, for the weekend. I told the guys who were at the weekend away uh, that, and for those of you who are regulars here but couldn't make it, uh, thank you for the invitation. We love Andrew and C and uh, church here, and it's, a, uh, it's been a blessing to, uh, to me. And, and my daughter, Karis, is here with me for the first time in London, and we have loved uh, every minute of being over here with you. Romans 8, <clears throat> let's read from verse 31. Um, it may feel to some of you like we're diving in <coughs> randomly here, but I, I pray that this end of Romans will all come together um, uh, here as we read together from verse, from verse 31. What then are we to say about these things? If God is for us, who is against us? He did not even spare his own son but offered him up for us all. How will he not also with him grant us everything? Who can bring an accusation against God's elect? God is the one who justifies. Who is the one who condemns? Christ Jesus is the one who died, but even more has been raised. He also is at the right hand of God and intercedes for us. Who can separate us from the love of Christ? Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or, or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We're counted as sheep to be slaughtered. No. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. Let's pray together. Father, what, what amazing words just to read. We feel like we could read those over and over again and just 
they would do our souls so much good just to just to hear the weight of that truth of how deeply um, secure we are in you and how much you love us. And yet as we again sit under under your word, we want to acknowledge that we need the Spirit's help to hear your voice and to see with the eyes of the Spirit what we need to see for our soul's benefit. We want to feast on your word again. We've been eating, those of us over the week, and we've been feasting on your word, but we want to say to you that we're hungry for more. And please, would you even tonight expand our capacity for more of you? We want to, we want to leave this place drenched in the goodness of God tonight. Fully satisfied in the truth that you speak into our hearts and our lives this, this evening. And so please, would you come, Holy Spirit, now and teach us, instruct us. Grant us attention, those of us who are weary from a long weekend, sharpen our minds and our focus. Open up our ears to hear you. And may your word, like a, like a sword, pierce to the deepest parts of us. Thank you that it's not a sword that brings distru- destruction, it's a sword that brings healing. Would you come and just pour out your love on us? Through your word we ask in Jesus' name. Amen. So as we get to the, the end of Romans 8, Paul asks six questions that summarize all of the rest of Romans 8. And so we're going to go through these six questions. And I want to, I want to mention that um, Romans 8 is in the context of suffering. It, it, it's, a, it's a passage that deals with Christians who are suffering, it's encouragement to those who are asking life's toughest questions. Where is God when things go wrong? How long will this last? Does God genuinely love me? You know, when life puts you in the washing machine, that's when you start to ask the big questions. And we looked at some of those uh, over the weekend. Uh, But this chapter finds itself in the context of suffering and answers that Paul Shows us and gives to us, yeah, the God speaks to us, our glorious, glorious um, answers. Paul starts this section by saying, what shall we say to these things? What are, what are these things? Well, these things are the things that we've been looking at previously in Romans 8. He's been going and going and going and going. He says, what on earth are we going to say to all of this that we've been looking at? How are we going to respond? And that's how we'll end. So we're starting like that and we're going to end like that. What are we going to say to these things? Isn't that, isn't that great that that's in the scriptures? Like, how are you going to respond? I love that. I love the way your church does it. Our church does it in a sort of similar way. You go to some churches and they're like, sing, 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 pray, like do all the stuff kind of thing. And somebody gets up and preaches and it's just like, this is amazing. Thank you, God, for your word. And then like somebody gets up and like, thanks for being here today. Uh, the Lord bless you and keep you. And like, Grab some coffee in your way out. And you're like, huh? Like, God has just spoken to us. We want to respond in worship. And now you're sending us home. Okay, some of you are like staring at me like I've said something wrong. And you guys do it differently. You worship and then you, you, you have the God speaks through the word. And then you get to respond again in worship. And that's sort of what's happening here. You see, Paul's just like, what are we going to say to these things? How are we going to respond? Because when God speaks, you've got to respond. He's speaking. He wants you to respond, not just sit there going, oh, well, oh, that's interesting. 
I, I never saw that. Oh, wow, you know. When you see, you, you follow, if you read the book of Romans, which I encourage you to do from time to time, just sit down, find half an hour, read it from beginning to end. It won't take you longer than that. Read it from beginning to end. You'll see he just, as he's going through and he's tracing out some of the most beautiful theology in the, in the Bible, in the New Testament, he, every now and then he just erupts in praise. He's like, this is just too much for me. He's just like, bah, oh, the unsearchable riches of God. He's just like, oh, God's showing him stuff. And he's just, his mind is just like, exploding. That should happen to you. It's not an appropriate response to be like, ooh, that was interesting. Highlight that damn mark, a little thing there. Underline. Mm, bank that for later. Yeah, you, you should be wrecked with the revelation of God. What then shall we say to these things? Well, you can say a lot. Sometimes you just don't have anything to say, hey? I love those accounts in Scripture. When God meets with people, He reveals Himself. And what do they do? End of the story. It's just one person's face down. I'm done. I don't, want, I don't even want to look. I don't want to utter. I don't want to move a muscle. I think I've seen something of the glory of God. I'm, I'm too terrified to move. We're going to encounter some of that in all of its fullness one day. There's going to be utter silence in heaven. Because the glory of God is so glorious, you're not going to know what to say. You're not going to have anything to say. And the beauty of it is you're not going to need to say anything. Because God's glory is self-sufficient. It doesn't need our praise. It's beautiful just in its own silence. But it is for our good that we get to join in the never-ending glory and the worship of it. What then shall we say to these things? Question one. Here's a question. Who can be against us? Now, if you're on the weekend away, you're not allowed to cheat by shouting out the answers to all the questions ahead of what I'm saying uh, that would show you paid a lot of attention. Who can be against us? What, what, what is Paul meaning here? Because there's many things and people that can be against us. Isn't that right? I mean, there were, there were many people against Paul. He's writing this and he's like, who can be against us? It's like, Paul, um, do you remember the time you were chased out of uh, Ephesus and the time that you were in prison, the time you were beaten and whipped and... You know, like, all those people against you, you know, like, do you have amnesia? Like, there are a lot of people who want to see the end of you. Like, what's this nonsense, like, who can be against us? Man, there's like half of the known world, like, against you, bro. They want to wipe you out. What's all this, like, who can be against us? It's cute. But he understands what's really going on. He understands what's really going on. And the answer that he gives is this, no one. So that's the pattern. You'll pick up the pattern of this preacher is a question and answer and a reason. The question is who can be against us? The answer is no one. And why? Because God is for us. That's what he says. Because God is for us. There may be many, many people against you, Paul. There may be many, many people against you. I'm conscious whenever we're preaching that there are people listening who come from Various contexts and stuff. And in our church, we've got a couple people who I know better than some of the others. And I know their family context. And I know they are the only believer in their family. And their entire family are hostile. They're not apathetic towards their faith. They are hostile. They actively ridicule, the, particularly this one, this one young lady. They ridicule her for her faith in Jesus. They mock her. They tease her. They, I mean, they're her family. You know, They kind of love her. 
but they are so hostile to faith that they've almost turned on her as a, as a sibling, as a daughter. And they are against her. I don't, I don't know what your situation is. Maybe others are against you. Maybe, maybe not. I think there's a sense in which if we follow Jesus faithfully and biblically, there should be people against you. Jesus says, woe to you if everyone speaks well of you. If there's no one who's opposing you, maybe you've blended in a bit too much. There's no distinction between you and somebody who doesn't follow Jesus. There's nothing for them to oppose because it's not that you need to be offensive to people, but the gospel and a gospel-centered life and loving and living like Jesus is offensive to a, a world and an age that is against him. So There should be some heat coming your way when you follow him faithfully. He says, well, no one can be against me because God is for me. At some point, you have to draw the line. And people will be against you, but will they succeed? People will be against you, but will they succeed? No, in an ultimate sense. I need to say that no, in an ultimate sense, because God is for us. God is for you. He's not neutral. Some of you, we've touched on some of these themes. We repeat these things. What is your picture of God looking at you? Apathetic? Arms folded? Waiting to see how you're going to do? Watching your next move? Hmm, not bad. You can do better. It took me so long as a believer in Jesus to undo that picture of God that I could always do better. I, I, I never had a dad, grew up fatherless like that. And it's a long story, the rest of it. It's a bit of a mess. My mom was a constant. And only later in life, many, many years after following Jesus, did God restore my relationship with my mother. But my mother, um, because she was a single mom, dealing with three kids and her life falling apart and multiple relationships, she was super strict and very performance-driven based on how she'd been raised. And I remember that was the refrain in my childhood. You can always do better. You can always do better. You can always do better. And so when I became a believer, that became the mantra for me. You can always do better. You can always do more. And God looking at me thinking, yeah, that's not bad. You can do better. You can do better. That is not in here. It's not. It's not in God and it's not in here. And for some of you, that's the only reason you came here tonight. Just to hear that. That that is not how God treats you. Some of you are performance-driven people. You're A-types. You know, personality, A-type personality, is that a thing over here? I think it's a thing everywhere. Personality is not really <laughs> confined to South Africa so much. <laughs> we have more personality than you lot, but it's not that like we don't have the exclusive thing, you know. There's a lot of sappers here as well, so. You know, they're A-types. They want to get stuff done. They're driven. They want to succeed. And there's nothing wrong with wanting to succeed and get stuff done. But if that is how you see God relating to you, that his delight in you is how well you get stuff done. How good a Christian you are. It's going to cripple your joy in God. Or he's going to be thinking, oh, I need it, I need it, I need it. Maybe the progress for you just tonight is just to realize he's not sitting like this. He's sitting like this. His arms are out. I want to take you closer and pick you up and just love you and lavish love over you. He says, fine. He doesn't, he doesn't care. It's all been done for you. It's all been done for you. You don't have to do a thing for God. Somebody once rocked my world. 
You should never say this to a pastor. You should never say what I'm about to say to your pastor. What if you never, what if your church closed down, you never, you couldn't be a pastor, what would you do? How do you think God would feel about you? I'd be like, whoa, don't ask me rad, radical things like that. You know, because as pastors, you sort of find identity in being pastors. Oh, well, I used to. And it took me on a soul searching thing, say, what if, what if I didn't need a church? What if I wasn't a pastor? Who would I be before God? You know what the answer is? Beloved. Deeply, deeply loved. Fully accepted. Never have to lift a finger for him. You're deeply loved and fully accepted without lifting a finger for God. That's the message of the gospel. It's not about what you do. It's what he's done for you. Yeah, he delights in our obedience and partnering with him. Absolutely. It does bring him joy. But man, you don't, you don't, you're not working for something. You're working from something. I'm saying that again. You're not working for something. You're working from something. And that is a finished work of the Son of God on your behalf. And it's wonderful. God's not neutral. He is so for you. He's so for you. The second question. Will God give us all things? Will God give us all things? First thing we need to do is clarify what the all things is. I come from South Africa. Africa is the land of prosperity churches. Dudes get up and they just preach the biggest load of rubbish. God wants to give you this, bless you, wah, wah, wah. You know, they preach to the poor. They rock up in a fancy Mercedes and preach to the poor to get money and then drive off in the Mercedes and pray for people. I've been in churches where you have to pay to get prayed for by the pastor. Don't even think about it, dude. You have to pay to get paid for. You have to pay to get prayed for by the man of God because his prayers are like super duper effective. Isn't that grievous? The all things is not all things. Listen to what Paul is not saying. He is not saying God will give you all things, anything you want. He is saying he'll give you everything you need. And if you're on the weekend, you're going to connect the dots here. God has promised to give you everything you need to be conformed to the image of the Son of God. Everything that you need for life and for godliness, God says, there you go. (laughs) I'm never going to hold back on giving you those things. But the all things that you may want, yeah. Let's talk about those things. Because some of the things, I think, if God had said yes to everything that I'd ever asked him for, my life would be a mess. I would have married the first girl I went out with. That would have gone badly. (laughs) The less said about that, the better. God knows in his wisdom, some of his answers are just a flat-out no. It's just a flat-out no. No. Because he said no already in his word. You don't even have to pray about it. It's just like, no. I know I don't want to step on toes here. Uh, I probably will, but. I think you'll give me grace because I'm going back to South Africa and this is my seventh preach in however many days. So we had a girl in our church come to me and say, she's been praying about uh, marrying this guy who's not a, a follower of Jesus. And she's been praying about it and she feels like she has peace from God. That God's saying yes. And I'm like, oh, just can you rewind? Say that again to me. You've been praying about it. You feel like God said yes. I'm like, how? How did, how did he say yes? Okay, okay. Well, he said no, but you heard yes. 
I'm like, and she left our church. She left our church as a result. We tried to deal with it pastorally, sensitively, gently with her. But she had heard what she wanted to hear, not what God had said. When you want the all things, sometimes you can hear your own things there. God hasn't promised to give you all things and just say yes to any request you have. He said, yeah, I'll give you everything that you need to be conformed into the image of my son. I'll give you everything you need for life and godliness. I will hold nothing back in that. Why do we think he will? The answer, will he give us all things? The answer is yes, he will. Why will he give us all things? What is the reason Paul gives? Because he didn't spare his own son, but gave him up for us. That's the assurance that you have that God will give you all things. It's an argument from the greater to the lesser. He has given his son and not held him back from us. Anything else you want? I mean, just consider with me for a second what it, what it cost God to give his own son. As a sin offering for us. The one who'd never known sin, never gone anywhere near sin, never put a foot wrong. And we looked around the weekend, this majestic God squeezed his godness into human form and abandoned that and laid it aside for a while to take on human form, to live in perfect obedience before the Father as a man, to fulfill the righteous requirements of the law on our behalf so that he could extend to us this wonderful gift of righteousness. That, that God, the Father gives the Son so when you doubt how, God, how good God is, that's where you go to find a, a, the answer. Ask a question, how good is God? Will he hold anything back from me? He has already given you his very best. Everything else is a small thing. It's a small thing. You look at the sun to, when you're wondering how much God loves you. Because you, you're going you're gonna to hit those seasons. If you haven't hit them yet as a Christian, you're going to hit them. And you're wondering, how much does God love me? The answer is there. It's fixed. It's called the cross. That is the answer to how much God loves you. That he would not even willing to withhold his own son. But he gave him for you. And he'll give you all things that you need for life and godliness as a result of that. It's absolutely astounding. Question three. Who shall bring any charge against us? Who's going to bring a charge against us? What does he mean here? Connected with the next question, but it's basically a, a charge that sticks as an imagery of a, of a court of law. A charge that sticks, an accusation that's, that sticks against you. And if you think of where some charges and accusations come from in your life, they come from all over the place, don't they? And another reminder for us that our main accuser is, is the enemy of God. He's the enemy of God who's trying to get back at God, but he can't. He can't get back at God, so he goes after that which God loves the most, and that's you. And if he can derail you and pull you away from God, it's the next best thing. That's why he will come and he will speak his native language, which is lies, and he will accuse you with everything that he has. And he will cast doubt. It's his language, it's his method from the very beginning. 
When Adam and Eve sinned, what did Satan come and say to them? In the Garden of Eden interaction, did God, before that said, did God really say? That's his opening. Did God really say? Yeah, he did. Don't come and cast doubt on what God said. God really did say that. Don't come and cast doubt on God. You lose your way as a Christian. Listen to a warning here. I'm giving you a warning. When you start to doubt what God has said already, and you listen to those doubts, you're on a slippery slope. And those doubts will be fueled by the accuser's voice in your head. Is Satan lying to you? God has spoken explicitly in his word. When you start to put question marks next to all of that stuff, say, oh, I don't know if it really means that. No, it means, it means that. It's just you don't like what it says. And when we start to bend it and move it and excuse it and question marks, we are just going along with the ploys of the enemy to drag us away from God. Because that's what the accuser loves. To steal, kill, and to destroy you. And he's prowling around like a roaring lion seeking those he can devour. I don't mean to terrify you. We had such a great week in the bush uh, on a safari. I have to use the word safari with you a lot. I think uh, South Africans are like, don't say safari. It wasn't like we went to Medikwe's amazing game lodge with our kids. And there's lions like prowling around um, our Land Rover kind of thing. It was a great opportunity to talk to my kids about the reality of Satan and his desire for the children of God. It's like a great object lesson. See that lion over there? <laughs> it's like exhibit A. Can you see that lion? And you know what? We're like, you know what? Like, this place where we stay has got a fence around it. You can't go outside the fence. You feel super safe inside the fence. I don't know if there's a zoo in London. Is there a zoo? You have lions in it? You have. Someone's been there. Someone's got to have been to the zoo in London. There's a lion. You go to the, you go to the London Zoo. Let's bring it home. You, you, you go to the London Zoo. You stand. There's a fence between you and the lion. You feel pretty safe. Huh? You're not sitting there thinking, this thing's going to get me. You take that fence away. You take that fence away, see what happens in London. Every now and then in, in, in South Africa, a lion escapes somewhere. And like it makes national news. It's like, there's a lion on the loose. Can everybody just stay home? Like, we're working on the situation. <laughs> it genuinely happened. There was like a lion on the loose for like three weeks near Kimberley Oaks. The other week, I promise you, it was hectic stuff. Yeah. They eventually found that thing. You know, we're like as Christians. Sometimes we have this, we have this idea that Satan is behind a fence. And you can get close to sin, you can get close to stuff, and it's not going to hurt you. It's not a fence. He's a roaring lion. He's looking for those he can devour. And one of the ways he devours is when you listen to the accusations and you start to doubt the truth of God. You teen yourself up to be dragged away from the herd and devoured. I know it sounds serious, but there's life and death and Vitality and faith at stake in this. Who shall bring any charge against us? Charges that stick. We looked at that. Satan brings these things. The answer is no one. No one can bring a charge against us. Why? Because it's God who justifies. God has justified us. God has declared us not guilty, not condemned. I've sorted the sin issue with this one out. No, you can't bring a charge against this one. This one is sorted. No, no, don't come. Don't come throw anything against Dan. Got that one covered. He's mine. 
Blood covers him, forgiven, rescued, son of God. Those charges are not going to stick. I'm not going to stick with that one. Mm-mm. And you need to learn that. You need to learn to drill that into your heart and mind, that those charges don't stick because you have been justified. There's a legal declaration in the spiritual realm over your life that the charges don't stick anymore. I just want to say here that there's no guarantee that other people's charges won't stick and won't really, really hurt. The stuff that people say about you may really, really, really hurt. And they may cause death. When I mentioned this to our church, they were not impressed with me. But it's in the Bible. If you're making notes, you read Acts 6. And the stoning of Stephen. You may not know the whole story. We don't have time to read the whole thing. But they, they wound up false witnesses around this man full of the spirit called Stephen. And it says in Acts 6, you can read it from verse 13. They gathered together false witnesses to come and speak against him. And everyone believed these false witnesses. And they got stoned to death. So people's words can have power in a human sense. And around the world now, there are more Christians who are dying for their faith than ever before. You know, not in London so much, I don't think. But this is not normal Christianity, what you're experiencing here. This is a bubble. We have the same thing in Joburg. We're in a bubble. This is not normative Christianity now in the history of the world. On the face of the earth. This is luxury. This is the epicenter of comfort of Christianity. Our brothers and sisters are perishing for their faith because false charges are brought against them. And they are dying because they believe in Jesus Christ. Would you have the same courage? Would you have the same courage? People's words could cause the end of your life for your faith in Jesus. Would you have the same courage? It's a question we have to sit with. Pray that God would give us that courage if we needed it, if and when we needed it. The charges can stick, but this is the point Paul is making, that in the court of heaven, before the ultimate judge, those charges are not going to stick. He is the one who declares you're justified. They may take your life now, but those charges will not stick for your eternal destiny. And you will be welcomed in to the presence of the Father with glory and forgiveness and acceptance. The charges down here don't stick where it really matters. Are you with me? Question number four. Who can condemn us? Who can pass ultimate judgment on us? And the answer is no one. No one. Why? Because of Jesus. And Paul gives answers. He says, Christ Jesus, he interrupts himself. He says, Christ Jesus is the one who died. More than that, he was raised and he's the right hand of God. He's at the right hand of God and is interceding for us. He is the go-between for us. That's why no one can condemn us. There's plenty to condemn about you and me. Wouldn't you agree? I mean, you've done stuff this week. You've done stuff this weekend on the church weekend, Nochal. That does not translate. Um, you, you got, some of you are with me. That's fine. You've done stuff on the church weekend. 
Man, if everyone knew about it, you do condemn, condemn worthy, I'm butchering the English language here, things worthy of condemnation. So do I, on a daily basis. You do. Thanks be to God, we have Jesus Christ. The one who intercedes for us. He goes between us and the Father. And our ongoing actions don't damage that standing that we have. Because God has taken him and had him crucified on a cross, buried in the ground, raised to life, and exalted him and put him, the Father's put him next to him. And this is what Paul says, that when you become a Jesus follower, you are what? You are in him. So he's taken you, and because of your faith, he's seated you in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. So where is your faith secured? It's there. It's not down here. It's not down here. It's not, this is a bit tenuous down here. Your actions could derail it kind of thing. It's secure in Christ in the heavenly places. It's an anchor for your soul. It doesn't mean you get to then live however you want. woo cool. <laughs> if I'm anchored there, then I can scorp it loose and just go wild and carry on like whatever while I'm down here. It's no, man. If you understand that truth, it motivates a new kind of holiness in you. It's if that's where I'm seated, I want to live up to that. I want to strive for who I really am. We're talking about this on the bus trip, that the process of maturing as a Christian is becoming more of what God has already made you. I'll say that again. The process of maturing as a Christian is becoming more of what God has already made you. You're not unlocking things and leveling up. God has delivered all of this and changed your identity as you became a Jesus follower. And you spend the rest of your life understanding and stepping in and discovering all of the richness of what God has made you. That's what it means to follow him. I mean, it's secure and it's all because of Jesus. Question five. Who can separate us from the love of God? I need to find the rest of this in my notes because I lost part of it. Who can... First, give me one second, yeah. Who can separate us from the love of Christ... Can affliction or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? As it is written, because of you, we are being put to death all day long. We are counted as sheep to be slaughtered. What can separate you from the love of Christ? Have a look at some of those examples there. That's hectic stuff. Affliction, distress, persecution... Famine, nakedness, danger, or sword. It's written, we are being persecuted, we are being put to death. They're treating us like sheep and they are slaughtering us. The question is, is it working? Is it separating us from the love of Christ? They can separate your head from your body. Are they separating you from the love of Christ? And the answer, say it with me, is no. The answer is no. I know this is not your regular diet of questions you think through. What's the answer? The answer is no. What's the reason? Verse 37. In all these things, we are more than conquerors through him who loved us. 
Wow. You've just been cut down like sheep at the slaughterhouse. And the answer is what? We are more than conquerors through him who loved us. You wiped us out. You're butchering our people. And the answer is, we're the ones who are actually conquering here. You looks like you're winning. We're winning. Because you can take my life, but you can't take my salvation. The blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. How do you think you became a believer in Jesus sitting in London in 2019? The gospel spread. Do you think it spread harmoniously? Do you think it didn't cost people their lives to see the gospel take root amongst the Gentiles and spread around the world? You are a believer in Jesus today because it cost people their lives and blood was shed for the gospel to spread around the world. And it continues to this day. No one is losing. Everyone who gives their life for Jesus is a conqueror in him. They're a conqueror in him. We don't feel pity for martyrs. Don't don't ever feel a pity for someone who's given their life for the cause of Christ. They're They're more than a conqueror. Because they are in him. Your eyes will deceive you. Your eyes will deceive you and tell you a different story. That Christianity is on the wane. That people are ashamed. That God has lost his life, whatever. We had very good friends who were working in Turkey years ago. A missionary friend of ours who working with three young local Turks. These guys rocked up at the house where they were having a meeting. My missionary friend wasn't there. They were just having locals there. They knew they were meeting there. They went in there and butchered them. Every single last person in that house, they butchered them. All believers in Jesus. The enemy trying to snuff out the church in Turkey. Doing his best to snuff out the church. You know, it has the exact opposite effect. Because you're dealing with conquerors. You're dealing with the power of God and light that is advancing against darkness. Out of that martyrdom, Three new churches started. Multiple Turks flooding in to the church. It's all underground. You're not going to hear about it. Don't, you're not going to find it. Don't go Google it. You're not going to read it in the news. God's kingdom, God's economy works very, very differently. Blood bought progress in the kingdom of God. But don't feel sorry for those who've given their lives for Christ. They are more than conquerors and they are delighting in the presence of God for all eternity. How does he end this? Verse 38, have a look at it with me. For I am persuaded that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers nor height nor depth, nor any other created thing will be able to separate us from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. I know that some of the examples that I've mentioned and that we've looked at tonight, you might feel are a bit extreme. You might feel like that doesn't really relate to me. Like I don't feel like my life is on the line for Christ this week. But there'll be other things that will come across your path this week that will cause you to doubt the love of God for you. And you wonder, like, am I separated? Let me ask you a question. Do you feel like your sin this week is going to separate you from the love of God? You're not going to answer that, but I want you to think about it. 
Because your answer to it, as you reflect and as you meditate on it, it changes the way that you respond to God as you sin. It's one of the things we try to teach people and disciple them in our church and say, it's not sinless perfection that we're aiming for. All we're aiming to do is, as we sin, to respond quicker with repentance out of the beauty of God and realize we have sinned against you, God. I'm so sorry. I do love you. I hate the fact that I've done this again. We rush in to receive the same forgiveness that we wash our souls in day after day, week after week, month after month. It doesn't mean that we don't sin. It just means we respond differently when we do sin. You do that because you know that nothing can separate you from the love of God that's in Christ. When you put your head on a pillow tonight at some point, the last words I would love to come out of your mouth tonight would be a prayer to God saying, Thank you, God. That because of your great mercy and your love for me, I'm so secure in you that nothing, nothing, nothing in all the world outside of this world, can separate me from your love. Not because I'm holding on to you, but because you're holding on to me. That's your great confidence. If you're a Jesus follower, that is your greatest confidence. That God's hold on you is far, far stronger than your hold on him. Because yours is going to slip. And you'll have experienced that before, and you'll experience it again. Yours, Yours will slip. But his hands are holding you in love. It's beautiful and it's wonderful. And I pray it encourages you tonight. What will we say to these things? What will we say to these things? I want to give you one minute to briefly respond on your own. Yeah, there's going to be other responses. We can have communion together. What will you say to these things? That God loves you like this and holds you like this. Ask God for some words. Ask God for some words to respond appropriately to you appropriately to his love lavished over your life again this evening. I'm going to give you one minute, then I'm going to pray for us and hand over to you guys to lead us. Father, there is no one and there is nothing in all creation like you. There's no one who relates to us like you. There's no one with the kindness, with the patience, with the love for us like you have. All other relationships work differently to the one that you have with us. And we love you and we worship you for that tonight. And we want to say thank you for taking hold of us the way you have. And we want to say thank you for the love of God in Christ for us that nothing can separate us from how sure how certain how secure how wonderful to be so deeply and thoroughly and securely loved by the God who has made us the God of the universe that we have nothing nothing to fear even our very lives being lost that you hold us that you're working all things for our good. You're changing us to become more and more like Jesus. But the security of this love, and I pray for my brothers and sisters here tonight, for those who feel on a bit of a roller coaster, maybe feel still on the performance wheel around having to earn your love, 
feel you pushing them away, putting them closer, depending on how they do. I pray tonight would be a watershed for them as they hear this, that nothing can separate them from your love. Your delight over them is fixed. And your face is towards them. They are dearly beloved. They belong to you. And you want to let them know that again tonight. I pray that you would do that by the work of the Spirit amongst us. You are so, so unspeakably good to us. We love you and we worship you tonight. Thank you, Father.